knowing that our ancestors were intensely rooted and were very much, you know, in, in, in sync with, with the natural world around them. They weren't just, you know, penned up in shtetls to have no real you know, agency and no real ability to, to sort of partake in, in their environment, their, their, their physical environment was revelatory for us. I'm Clarissa Marks, and you are listening to On Wandering, a podcast that explores the nuance and complexities of Jewish identity. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. This will be the last episode of the show for now. I'm taking some time off from podcast production to regroup and imagine what comes next. I really appreciate everyone who has come along and listened into this journey, and I hope that you heard something that stuck with you. The podcast feed and website will stay up, so you can subscribe or visit onwandering.co to listen to all of the past episodes whenever you want. And to find out what comes next, you can sign up for my newsletter or follow me on social media. There will be a link to both in the show notes. It feels fitting for this last episode that my guests actually found me through this podcast to talk about a subject that I had never heard of. Ashkenazi herbalism. Dietra Cohen and Adam Siegel have explored the world of Jewish medicinal plant healers within the communities of the Pale of Settlement in Eastern Europe, and they've written a book to share their findings. As trained librarians and linguists, Dietra and Adam were uniquely suited to uncover these practices that lasted from the Middle Ages to the modern era, but were hidden by language barriers and obscure documents. The book is eye-opening and includes the first Materia Medica of 26 plants and herbs essential to Ashkenazi folk medicine. Dietra, Adam, and I talked about their research process, the legacy of Ashkenazi herbalism, and how their experiences as Jews interacted with their work. I started the interview by asking Dietra how she found her way to this topic. For our listeners, if you could talk about how you became interested in Ashkenazi herbalism. Okay, I guess I'll start with that one. I went back to school and in herbalism. And when you first become acquainted with the study of it, the you're pretty much encouraged to look into your own ancestral practices in terms of plant knowledge and how immediate family even would have known to turn to plants for medicinal purposes. And so in our first class, that was the main topic of conversation. And it went around the room and a lot of people talked about ginger. When it came to my turn, I couldn't really think of anything that my mom would have given us except for things like tea with lemon and honey. She did use honey a lot for giving us medicines like um, aspirin. So that was my contribution to our class conversation. And I felt kind of disappointed because other people in the class had more just detailed possibilities that their families had gone to in terms of plant medicine. And then somebody else in the class who was also from an Ashkenazi background 
was joking around and said, well, at least we have chicken soup. And so, you know, of course I can identify with that because our family had also eaten chicken soup around colds and things like that. But she also then said after that, and she wasn't joking, well, if that's all that we had, then it was probably due to religious restrictions. And I wasn't raised with religion. And so when she said that, it was really hard for me to contemplate any group of people that wouldn't have looked to the plant world or the natural world around them for healing because of religious restrictions. It just didn't bring true to me. And so that was the beginning of my need to find out what my own grandparents would have looked to as far as the plant world was concerned, because on my mother's side, they came from a tiny, tiny town in Poland. So I just was convinced that they would have known other things besides chicken soup. (laughs) And then Adam, how did you get involved and interested in Ashkenazi herbalism? Well, uh, actually, I, that, I sort of came at it from a different angle, Deetra. I mean, obviously, I you know was very happy when she went off to study, back to school to study. As somebody who's also of Ashkenazi Jewish background, I was very interested in her pursuit of this topic. And I have had a long-standing interest in cultural contact in Eastern Europe from all kinds of angles, artistic, aesthetic, literary, historical, cultural, political, etc. So it was a wonderful opportunity when she Dietra started looking more deeply into um you know the question of is is there anything written on the, the the topic of plant medicine healing modalities that are used by that were used by Ashkenazi Jewish communities yeah. before the war i was happy to sort of roll up my sleeves and you know we're both working librarians or Dietra's a retired librarian but i'm still a working librarian and and start looking through as much of the literature as we could sort of survey to see what was out there one of the things that I picked up from reading the book is that this information was really hard to find. This sounds like it was a really big project and there wasn't any explicit research done about Ashkenazi herbalism in the past. It sounds like you had a watershed moment when you found a Soviet document that had an ethnobotanical field study. Can you tell me a little bit about that document? Yeah, that happened probably later on in my research, I literally had that document from the very beginning of my studies. I couldn't at the very outset find anything that had been written in, I was looking in English at that point. I decided to turn to populations that would have been adjacent to my own background. So those were the populations that were in Eastern Europe. And so in English, I was able to find three sources that were fairly recent, like written in the last, in the 20th century. One that was on Polish use of medicinal plants, one on Russian and one on Ukrainian. And so the document that you're talking about was herbs used in Ukrainian folk medicine. That book was definitely the pivotal moment. There were other ones that were leading up to it, but that one just was a total breakthrough. 
what that book has in the back of it is a list. It's like an appendix with a list of all the towns where these anonymized informants had come from. So this document was taken from data that was collected between World War One and World War Two. So it was collected in the late teens to the early 30s by the Soviet government who had been looking for inexpensive medical supplies because they had run out of their medicines after the First World War. And so they sent around these ethnobotanical survey groups, and one of these groups went to Ukraine. And so this survey was taken from a hundred towns in Ukraine, around a hundred towns, about the medicinal plants that folk practitioners uh, used and knew about. So I decided to look at the towns that were uh, listed in this document. And in within and as I sat there on the internet going through this list, I was getting these hits, like the first hit on each town that came up showed up as Jewish Gen, which is a genealogical site. And I would say for 75% of the towns in that list, that's what I was getting. And besides Jewish Gen, I was getting things like Yad Vashem and things about shtetls and just like all this really like unexpected hits before any other hits were coming up. So this was a a secular study, theoretically. This was supposed to be a study done of of the general Ukraine countryside and and herbal practices there. No one mentioned it was it happened to center on all of these Jewish towns. It only came from you looking up the names of these towns. She never even mentioned Jews in the town so in strange. the in the survey. It's, it doesn't come up at all. It doesn't come up at all. And so that was just bizarre and I Adam happened to be sitting in the room while I was going through this list and I turned around to him and I said do you think this means something what do you suppose this is and of course you can imagine what he said and <laughs> I said there's yes more I think that comes after that <laughs> <laughs> wow let's set the scene a little bit the book centers on herbalism in what we call the pale of settlement roughly where geographically was Ashkenazi herbalism practiced and where and when was it practiced? It was practiced all over, all over the pale. Um, since we didn't look really outside of that, but it was, I'm sure it was all over Europe. But since we were focusing on the pale and specifically this book, I spent quite some time going through that whole list. And what I did was I identified each town, which was not easy because they had gone through all kinds of name changes over the years since between the study itself and the publication of the book. And what I found was that most of them had Yiddish names, each of these towns, and that they all needed to be pinpointed on a map. So I made a Google map with all of them, and I collected all the data I could find on each town. And what I came up with on this map was that in Ukraine, it's divided on West Bank and East Bank, or Right Bank and Left Bank. And on the uh, Right Bank is where all the shtetls have historically been known. And surprisingly or not surprisingly, most of the towns in the survey were located on that bank of the Dnieper River. And so 
that's where I would say in this particular instance, most of Ashkenazi herbalism was being practiced. Were you able to find out if these practices were used by Ashkenazi Jews outside of the Ukraine? Were there Jews in like Poland and Russia who were using these herbs? I mean, do you want to answer that, Azzy? Oh, sure. Yeah, the short answer is yes. I mean, that you know, Disha sort of used this book as sort of a skeleton key just to sort of identify. Once you once you sort of unlocked that and confirmed that yes, there were that there was there's a record of herbal medicinal practices in 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 towns and villages in this one part of Ukraine, but certainly as we went through and we didn't even begin to scratch the surface, but there's like Yizkor books, there's other ethnographic stuff that was done, you know, in Poland between the wars that we sort of mentioned, but we didn't, Yivo did some, but some of it was done by like the Polish Academy of Sciences. You know, there was like a famous anthology, The Healer of Bilgari. It's an anthologized uh, account of a, a traditional healer in Bilgari, which is in Poland, not too far from the town where Dietrich's grandparents are from. So yeah, if you look across the the Pale of Settlement, we'll say that runs roughly from, you know, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, what's Belarus, most of Ukraine, bits and chunks of Romania, you know, all the way down to the Black Sea. About the only thing that I think might vary from place to place is the plants. But, you know, there's pretty strong evidence that, you know, Jews and communities along the Black Sea near the Crimea were certainly were, had had herbal medicinal traditions and they just they just used somewhat different plants than were used. 500, 600 miles to the, the the northwest. To what extent are the practices outlined in your book, specifically Jewish plants and Jewish practices, how much of these practices were influenced by non-Jewish cultures or shared with non-Jewish cultures? Yes. The answer is yes. It, it's a melange. I mean, the history of Eastern Europe, and even today, it's a history of lots of different peoples living in fairly close proximity. And living together and living, you know, among one another and building communities that at many points in history were very closely linked. Dietrich talked about the herbs used in Ukrainian folk medicine and whether it should be herbs used in folk medicine in Ukraine (laughs) as opposed to Ukrainian. But there's certainly, you know, we did look at a lot of Russian and Ukrainian language sources that were most definitely about the ethnic communities, the ethnic Ukrainians, ethnic Russians. And it's maybe a little speculative, but obviously... You know, Jews with their high literacy rates and levels of education and also orientation toward Western Europe had access to century, millennia old classics in Western medicine, such as Dioscorides and, you know, Pliny and so forth that, um, you know, that their, their, their neighbors may not have had. So a lot of their modalities were clearly derived from a really ancient you know, European or Western tradition. I also want to mention the Sephiroth. These remedy books that were always referred to by mostly the male healers and the information that was written in these books came from all different kinds of sources. Some of it came from surrounding cultures like in, I want to say Poland, the Slavs, they drew a lot from Slavic medicine and used a lot of their language and the plants that they talked about. and. A lot of it came from European sources, from 
doctors who had written in, let's say, Switzerland, and then this sort of thing was translated over and over again and ended up in these different iterations of these remedy books, sometimes in Hebrew, sometimes in Yiddish. And so they would take a lot of that knowledge and apply that in these remedy books. And all kinds of healers use these, mostly male, I would say. So these might have been the Shem, and then later on the Felchers. I noticed that there were so many different professions that practiced herbalism in the book. I think I, I counted up to about six different types of people who would be yeah. relying on this. So if I was someone, you know, an Ashkenazi middle-aged Jewish woman who lived in the Pale Sediment in like the 16th century, and I had like a cold or a migraine, or I needed some kind of like reproductive checkup, who would I go to out of all of these different people? If you were in a small rural area, you probably, if you were a woman, you could have gone to, I would say you either a Baal Shem or to an Abshbrakaran. And they, I would say they had a lot of similarities. Apparently, from what we've read, the women, the Abshbrakarans, were more popular than the men because the men often spoke and did their healing in Aramaic or Hebrew, whereas the people spoke Yiddish. And the Abshbrecherin spoke Yiddish, so they were more kind of accessible, and they practiced with ritual and also with herbs, and they related to their patients in either Yiddish, and sometimes it also sounds like the language of the surrounding people. So sometimes maybe in Ukrainian or in Polish or whatever was being spoken um, where they lived. If you could, for our listeners, what is an Ashbrakran and a Balashem? <laughs> okay, the Balashem were trained probably kind of a a rabbi who focused their healing through the Kabbalah and practical Kabbalah and so were guided by that and the, and also the remedy books that they drew their plant knowledge from and their healing and their body system knowledge from. And so they did, and they made charms, which could have been like a piece of jewelry or um, a piece of paper that was written on that kind of sent away the disease or the problem or the issue. And they gave these things out and they also gave out herbal remedies. And then the Abshprekerans concentrated on removal of the evil eye. And that could manifest in a lot of different ways. Like a lot of times it was brought on by fear or by envy from another person. Maybe you were afraid or it could be anything. Or you had like a skin rash. It was kind of like a magical religious kind of approach where they would make an incantation and or they would do a ceremony and then they would offer herbs. So their focus was, I would say, the evil eye and of what, however it, it would have manifested. Right. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. In the book, you talk about 
how herbalism really has two parts. There's the application of plants, and then there's the magico-religious aspect that's supposed to deal with the supernatural. What did that magico-religious part look like for Jews? Well, you know, so much of this stuff seems to be kind of divided between male and female practitioners. And so I would say the men were more concentrated on the giving out of these charms and these amulets and working through Kabbalah. And as far as women, they had different ceremonies. The one that we concentrated on in the book and the one that we found the most information about was a ceremony that was practiced in a couple of different ways. It's been written about in Jewish literature in ways that really obscure it and make it difficult to understand. But once you kind of tease it apart and you know what you're looking at, it becomes a little bit more clear. And what it looked like, as far as we could tell, and actually I recently just talked to somebody, an actual person in Israel who's practicing this ancient, ancient ceremony, explained it to me. I mean, actually, she confirmed what we had already discovered, is a person comes in to them and has a situation where they have, like, a fear. And so they'll come to the Upsprecheren, and she even said that she was called an Upsprecheren. And this person, the Upsprecheren, will talk to them about their fear, but while they're doing that, they have... The person sit down and they have a bowl of cold water that's held over their head. And I'm not sure if there's a second person or if the person themselves who's being treated holds it up. But for what for whatever, there's a bowl that's being held over their head with cold water. And so while this is going on, wax is being melted in another pot. Or it could be lead or it could be tin. And so that's being melted. And... The patient is talking about their fear and the Absprecherin is listening to them. And while they're talking, the lead is poured into this bowl of cold water or the wax or the tin, and it makes a certain shape. And so the the bowl is taken down and the shape is interpreted by the practitioner. And, um, And it's determined what is being feared and how to deal with this fear. And um, the sometimes this process can be done three times um, over and over at the same session before the uh, cure is obtained. And, and afterwards, or during, I believe, an incantation is intoned. And what we found is that these incantations are, can they can be in Yiddish, they can be in Ukrainian, probably sometimes they were in Polish, and they could incorporate all kinds of language that wasn't necessarily Jewish. You know, it could include things about saints, it could include things about Jesus Christ, you know, just things that you wouldn't ordinarily think of as being Jewish, possibly even heresy. And these incantations were looked at by the rabbis and they weren't necessarily dismissed or thought of as being 
illegal religiously because as one rabbi wrote about them that it was just the sounds that were being understood but not the actual words and that those sounds were soothing and curing to the person but they weren't threatening to a jewish person yeah that's what i was going to ask was how did the rabbis feel about all of these practices they always turn to this thing, and I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but a, I don't know what a category would fall under, but it was kind of like a loophole, I'm going to say, called Pikash Nefua, or Adam, could you help me with the uh, pronunciation oh, of that? Pikuach Nefesh, I think. Pikuach Nefesh, right. Dietra is referring to Pikuach Nefesh, the principle of setting aside other aspects of Jewish law in order to save a life. And we found this over and over and over again. And basically it gives you or a healer the possibility to offer a cure that uh, uh, gives precedent over um, health and healing in life over anything else. So if um, somebody has a life-threatening situation, this will uh, give the healer, the right to offer them any sort of a cure or remedy that will help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of Jews today, I think, would be, might be a little surprised by the amount of supernatural belief or ritual that was going on with their ancestors because we've tended to distance ourselves as part of assimilation to everybody not even just Jews but a lot of modern folks are are oriented towards hard science or the medical world and then in the Jewish world we think of like the big R religious beliefs did you encounter that conflict when you were doing this research and learning all about the supernatural beliefs yes and no because when I think about things like I mean think about like a mezuzah you know, on the door, or you think about people touching wood all the time, or saying kinahura. Kinahura, a Yiddish expression intended to ward off the evil eye. I don't know about your family, but um, my grandmother's always going kinahura, kinahura, and gesundheit, or zai gesund, you know. So there is so much in our just day-to-day life that you just sort of take for granted and you don't really know where it comes from. But all those things come from these very superstitious beliefs that were so ingrained, but over, you know, the last couple generations have sort of been kind of neutralized, you know, but they're really strong and pervasive and uh, people probably are superstitious and they don't even realize it because these things are now kind of a little thing that you can buy, you know? And you know what I mean? It's been sort of like, I I guess I want to say commodified in a way, and it's just kind of like kitschy or whatever, but people, I think, still believe in these things. And so I, I, so yes, no, I was surprised and not surprised. Yeah. How about you, Adam? Oh yeah, and I was I was net foo foo foo. Oh yeah, which my grandmother all said. I I think 
Paradoxically, I think people are probably, at least, you know, uh, I'd say most, it's easier for most contemporary Jews to accommodate, you know, supernatural beliefs into their worldview than maybe a century ago. One of the, one of the, one of the challenges was when we had to start looking closely at some of the, you know, the ethnographic research that, that the Jewish expeditions you know, before the First World War, the Ansky expeditions in Russia, they were so dismissive. I mean, they were actually describing Absprecherin ceremonies. And of course, they would be so like, just, you know, like almost insulting. Like they would just play up all the, the, the mumbo gumbo, hocus pocus stuff. But then they would say like, well, you know, she did all this crazy stuff. She muttered, she whispered, she crawled around, she did this, she did that, you know, and then she gave me a tea. And I actually felt better, but they don't bother. They never bother to find out what she put in the tea, you know? So they just completely dismiss the actual healing power, you know, plant, you know, the plant knowledge that, that the, these traditional healers could actually bring to their patients. You know, it wasn't just incantations or charms. It wasn't just wax. I mean, that was useful. I mean, all that stuff is very, you know, it's certainly useful for the patients. It's useful for the community. I don't see any, you know, there are... A lot of a lot of stuff works and people don't know why or how it works. So you don't just dismiss you shouldn't just dismiss it out of hand. But certainly the most, you know, important knowledge that 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 a lot of the healers had, which was knowing how to use, you know, how to how to rely on plants and plant plant medicine to 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 treat people's ailments was not well described. That's something that I can imagine a lot of listeners thinking was like, oh, do we have any sort of evidence that these plants worked? Have, have we done any scientific studies or at least anecdotal evidence that shows that some of these plant applications actually d- did what they were claimed to do? Oh, oh, sure. Um, I'll, yeah, right. I'll, I'll, you, you, you start. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. when you, I, I, I wanted to mention earlier different plants that you would consider Jewish, you know, and one of those would definitely be garlic. And there's an actual really well-known in some um, healing circles healer named Dory Midnight who works a lot with garlic. And garlic has so many scientific studies done around it and so many indigenous or uh, native populations have been using this plant for, you know, since before language, probably. And garlic is known by the medical community as um, a plant that um, will lower your um, uh, cholesterol. It's very antibacterial. It helps with your respiration. It's just an amazing, 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 powerful plant. So yes, there have been many studies on plants and plant knowledge. And I should say that um, our pharmacy, pharmacy, any pharmaceutical that um, almost any pharmaceutical that you can think of originally started with plants and uh, including today, pharmaceutical companies will go to indigenous peoples. Um, I think now it's being done, you know, in uh, South America and they, um, they talk to the healers down there and uh, they basically, they, they steal their knowledge and they will make um, synthetic pharmaceuticals out of these things or 
you know, I, I just hate to even think of what they do, but it's very exploitative and it's very disingenuous to dismiss plant medicine by these so-called uh, authorities who are profiting off of indigenous knowledge and have been for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Were there any remedies that you found in your research that were from your own family background that you were maybe surprised or excited to find? Um, One of the ones that came up for me, I, is guess, I saw raspberries in there and I thought, yeah, like, oh, I, I know. I was just thinking about okay. raspberry. Yeah. Yeah. No, my grandparents always had raspberry jam around every time we were over there. They just, I don't know why, but they, and they liked the to, to have the kind with the seeds in it. And so like, that's a big comfort food for me is, I know this is going to sound really weird, but like rye bread with butter and raspberry jam oh, on that it sounds great. with that tea sounds with milk. <laughs> it's actually really good. And so, yeah, I mean, I was, I was surprised to find that raspberry syrup was a big healing um, remedy in the pail. And I found that several times in several different uh, sources. And um, later on, my mom told me that before my grandparents were married, they would go into the woods or the forest near their house because their village was surrounded by forests. And they would pick the raspberries and to sell in the market during the week. So that was kind of fun to hear that about my grandparents because I did not know that. Yeah, what was raspberry so, supposed to be good for in terms of healing? Oh, boy. Well, in the modern sense, I believe that it was decided that it's good for reproductive, women's reproductive health. In the pale, I think the fruits were used as a syrup for like people with colds and maybe a cough and things like that. It's very soothing, you know, and you can almost feel it going down your throat and just really just clearing things up and yeah just making you feel better yeah and I think it was um a children's remedy a lot because it just tastes good you know so it's kind of like makes the medicine go down better yeah and it's I'm sure it's chock full of vitamin c and definitely yeah Mm -hmm. cool yeah so I'm sure there's going to be folks who are wondering if I buy the the book you wrote, could I start making my own herbal remedies? Can I start doing my own practices? What would oh, be your boy. advice about that? I would say don't use this book for that. <laughs> this is not the book to use for that. This was written because um, this is almost like the book that I wished I could have found when I was in school. It's really a historical document. It. I wanted to find out about the healers, and that's exactly what I was able to do with Adam's amazing help with the languages and just his knowledge of history and just putting everything into context. And it talks, the reason I have the plant comparisons in there is because after we found out that this was shtetl plant medicine, I wanted to find out where was this knowledge coming from? Was it indigenous? Was it from the people around them? Was this really historical or was it something that was so local? And so that's what this is. I really wanted to just get to the bottom of where the knowledge was coming from. And I would say, do not use it. There are a lot of plants in this book that are definitely not things that modern contemporary herbalists would look to. And if they were, it would be under very, very, very strict 
just precautionary and well-educated situations because um, these are very powerful plants, a lot of them, and you definitely don't want to uh, mess around with them without like very, very deep knowledge of how they might interact with a body. And also plants interact differently with different people's chemistry. It's a good book to have around just to just to acknowledge that we too have had this experience in our ancestral background. And that's very exciting for a lot of people, including myself. I was wondering, Dietro, when we spoke before, you and I talked a bit about having that feeling of not quite feeling Jewish enough or not feeling like you're super connected to to Jewish identity. And I was wondering how writing this book has impacted your sense of Jewish identity. It really makes me feel more connected to people that I felt kind of really sort of outside, like like an outsider, you know, because, you know, my family didn't practice. I know nothing about the religion. At times that makes me sad. And then at other times I'm okay with it because it's so different than how I live in the world. I mean, I totally respect my ancestors. I love my grandparents so much. I miss them every day. I mean, just thinking about them makes me want to cry. But I just, but now I just feel more connected to these people who were so like strangers in a strange land. And yet they also had connections with the people and the land around them. And to me, that's just like, it's so comforting to know that they weren't totally like alienated in their own little world. They were part of a huge community of Jews and non-Jews and the land and the plants and the animals. And that's very, just so affirming, life affirming to me. And now I feel like I'm part of that legacy and that just way in the world. And that's just, it's so much more, it just feels so much more right than I have felt in the past about being Jewish, you know? There's so many different ways of being Jewish, not just one way that focuses on a religion. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that answers your mm-hmm. question. Yeah. Adam, do you, did you have a similar experience? Similarly to Dietra, again, I did not grow up Within a, in a religious household, I've no we're, we're like secular to like the nth degree, but I think for me that like like Dietra said that we, the 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 rap on 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 Jews is that they're rootless and there was nothing more rooted than 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 knowing that your, I mean your grandparents. I mean Dietra can tell you a story about her own grandmother here in California twenty five years ago, just picking some wild sorrel off the sidewalk and taking it home, making soup out of it, knowing that. Our ancestors were intensely rooted and were very much, you know, in, in, in sync with, with the natural world around them. But they weren't just, you know, penned up in shtetls and had no, to have no real, you know, agency and no real ability to, to sort of partake in, in their environment, their, their, their physical environment was revelatory for us. We both have a much deeper appreciation for where we are in the world and how to be in the world you know, without, without any kind of intercession. Mm-hmm. And that they, they really interconnected with the people around mm-hmm. them. I mean, from everything yeah. that we read and even what we wrote about, 
they healed the populations around them. And in turn, they were also healed by these people. And it just really had a feeling of interconnectedness with all different kinds of communities. And that was just another, just, oh, just a total epiphany. And it was just so hopeful and just so like positive. And, you know, despite all the differences and all these horrible stories that you read that people cared about each other. And this is just like, this is something that I would like to really emphasize because, you know, these are stories that you don't hear and they're so important. That's exciting to me to think that we did this, we can do this. And, you know, maybe the plants can help us facilitate this just healing of each other. It's really led to a reassessment for us of, of what what life in, 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 the, community, in the, the communities of the Pale was like the intercommunal reliance on one another for care. I mean, that came up, that came up again and again and again. We really want to look more deeply into that, but that's probably going to be something that we're going to keep working on the next book. Oh, that'd try be and so do. cool. We'll look more closely at that. Like Deidre said, I mean, it's very hopeful. Yeah, I, I feel like you're right that I've heard the same narrative of, well, Jews were just in a little pen in the Pale Settlement, not talking to anybody. Yeah. Not participating in a life outside. They were almost like they were cut off and frozen in a moment in time from the rest of the world around them. And reading about Uh how much folks traded knowledge between each other. And there were also stories, I think, of Jewish healers being called on by non-Jewish communities because they needed an expert in something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And vice versa. And and, And Jews looked outside their communities as well. And yeah. you know, and people would travel hundreds of miles to see healers. They would, you know, their reputations like were were very far reaching. And I don't know if it was people who were from some village and they went off to the big city and always came back, or if just everybody in all of Podolia knew that so and so was the best person for you know fertility issues or what have you. Oh, I would say the perfect embodiment of that. I would say is the Absprecherin. Because what we found is that the practice of the wax ceremony is so widespread in Eastern Europe. Ukrainians do it and Poles do it. And a version of it is done by Hungarians. And as you, as you look around, you can see that this is just something that these women just all knew about and they all did the same practice. And that is just so incredible to me that this is such a like widespread and common kind of practice. And also beyond that, it was mostly practiced by women. I think what you, what really comes through is the fact that so much of this women's knowledge was never written down. It was never written down. And so you have to get these snippets. Oh, that's, I think that's why we don't see anything about the herbs because they didn't write it down and nobody took them seriously we were able to find this because it was literally hiding in plain sight. This book and most of the literature that came out of these expeditions focused on women healers. Adam and I are really hoping that other people take up this mantle and continue with it because it seems really, really, really important. What do you wish that modern Jews knew about Ashkenazi herbalism? Just how 
like amazing our ancestors were the ones who weren't written about they were not written about you have to look in between the lines and in the margins and just really kind of eke out what little morsels you can find because these people were incredible did just the most amazing things I didn't mention them but the midwives I mean, a lot of the things that you read about the midwives, oh, they were dirty and they did this and they did that, but they're written about by men who were becoming physicians and taking this, just this amazing profession away from the women who had brought out like generation after generation after generation without any kind of acknowledgement. And they knew a lot and they had herbal knowledge and they knew how to, you know, heal a pregnant woman, get her through a pregnancy, through the birth. And then they worked with the infants and the children. And they were just these amazing, amazing healers who just get zero, zero acknowledgement or anything written about them. So those are, I just, those are stories that I, apparently many of the, the rabbis or physicians who worked with women would go to these women midwives and just tap them for information. And that's where they got their information about pregnancy and birth, you know, from these women. And then they would write about them and never give them the credit, including, I believe, uh, the Baal Shem Tov, whose mother was a midwife. Mm. I wish contemporary Jews would do is just to acknowledge so much of our history that was not written about. We've kind of been deprived of, you know, just knowing our own, our own traditions and our own legacies and our own history. And so, yeah, that's another area that I hope people are more interested in doing more research and scholarship around. Is there anything I haven't asked about yet that you'd like to talk about? Well, I guess I talked about not wanting to be an herbal interloper. And that was really early on in my studies. I came to a different conclusion about that. And I realized that the plants have their own agency. They're their own organisms. They live on this planet alongside us and they've been here for who knows how long before us. It seems wrong to claim them by us or by anyone. And so a cultural like claiming of a plant or a group of plants or medicine just doesn't seem right to me anymore. And the plants don't seem to discriminate from one group of people to another. They interact differently chemically with everybody, but they don't really discriminate against any sort of a group. The plants are very generous and they're they're just incredible and they're so abundant and that I just I feel so much reverence for them and I just hope that if if people are studying herbalism that they will also just respect the plant so much they're just I don't even have words for how much love I have for them I would just like to say behind you right now there's a whole bunch of foliage in your window <laughs> so there's this wonderful scene of you describing oh. your love for your plants with like and then I'm just looking oh, at the brush you. behind you <laughs> as you talk about them thank you yeah great it's, it's been great. It's been great talking to you. And I'm really 
happy that we've had the opportunity to to to, to, yeah. to meet. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so Ashkenazi herbalism, rediscovering the herbal traditions of Eastern European Jews is out in paperback at wherever books are sold. If folks want to learn more about you, Dietra and Adam, or follow your work or look for your next work, where can they find you on the internet? We have a website, and that's ashkenaziherbalism.net. One of our readers, and actually somebody whose work is in the book, Barbara um, Kirschenblatt-Gimblet, she really influenced me to start a Facebook page. So if people want to um, get in touch with us that way, they can go to that page also, Ashkenazi Herbalism, and they can always email us. We're happy to correspond. And, you know, I might start an Instagram. I'm not sure yet. If it's, yeah. I would follow that <laughs> Instagram. Like, that sounds like fun. Oh, Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I will take that under consideration. It sounds like, you know, our next step. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Yeah. And I'll make sure there are links to all of that in the show notes so listeners can take a look there. And it was wonderful talking to both of you. Thank you so much. Oh, same here. Thank you, Clarissa, for this invitation and opportunity. Thanks again for listening to the last episode of this podcast as we go on hiatus. This episode was produced by me, Clarissa Marks, with music by Gilly Cuddy. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Clarissa R. Marks, and check the show notes to subscribe to my newsletter and find out what's coming up next. Stay safe and well, and see you next time around. 